Hello everybody, this is Julian Charles of TheMindRenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And it's great to have with us today on the programme, Tony Rook of KillingAuntyFilms.co.uk. Tony Rook, who is a documentary filmmaker, made the headlines earlier this year when he appeared in court for refusing to pay his TV licence on the grounds that some of the BBC's coverage of the events of 9-11 was tantamount to a cover-up of terrorist activity, and that in the case of World Trade Centre Building Number 7, that there was even some evidence of prior knowledge of the collapse of that building within the BBC itself. And in his defence in court, he even appealed to the Terrorism Act 2000. And of course, we shall be getting into all that in greater detail, I hope, in a few moments. But first of all, may I say to you, Tony, thank you ever so much for agreeing to come on the show. Hi, Julian. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, I first became aware of your story when I got in touch with Dr. David Ray Griffin a couple of months ago. And I think many people will know David Ray Griffin as a first-rate scholar and perhaps one of the most significant researchers on 9-11. And he pointed me in your direction as somebody here in the UK and a Christian who is concerned about the issues surrounding 9-11. So I went to your website, uh, Killing Auntie Films. You're going to have to explain to us what that means, Killing Auntie Films. (laughs) And uh, I particularly looked at your documentary called Offensive, the story of Tony Farrell, which I think is an excellent documentary, and I do hope people will take a look at that. And I want to ask you about all this as we go along. But could I start by asking you very simply to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what it was that led you first to question the official story of 9-11? Yeah, I, I, I think I was like everyone else who, when I saw the events happen on the day, it, it never occurred to me. I saw an aeroplane hit a building. I saw a building fall down. It didn't seem unusual. It was it was only when somebody, I don't think it was loose change. A friend of mine gave me a DVD, I think, by a chap called Mike Rupert, who is uh, an American detective, a retired detective now, uh, who was doing a little talk on it. And he seemed to cast some doubts. And I, I watched that with some interest. And, and then somebody did give me a copy of Loose Change. And then it just really went from there. And I'd always had an interest in criminology. My father is um, a retired detective, showed it to him and said, you know, what what did he think? He's attended air crashes and things like that. So Shanksville obviously struck a chord with him. But I suppose really, I mean, I wasn't really what I would describe as fully on board as, as a quote unquote truther until, you know, maybe sort of four or five years after the fact. So would you say it was a, a number of experiences that you had seeing various things and hearing various things that gradually opened up this question to you yeah definitely i it was an accumulation of, of things mm. also because of my interest in the criminology side of things also the reaction of the american government i mean bush famously and and cheney sort of refusing to go under oath and appearing together before the commission the the appointment of henry kissinger as being in charge of the commission who i think christopher hitchens is on record as saying you know if you want someone to to do a cover-up then kissinger's your man <laughs> yes. it, and, and it was things like that it, it, it looked like they had something to hide they were behaving in a you know in what i would sort of describe as a you know a guilty manner um, and so that compounded, obviously, the forensic side of things, if you like, um, the, the thematic materials that, that seemed to have arisen. And, um, yeah, it was an accumulation of things. And, and, and eventually the, the, the official story just becomes completely untenable. 
Yeah, I think it's a very important point to make because people do often look at a, a particular case can be made, well, this doesn't make sense or this doesn't make sense. And then you can have some kind of ad hoc explanation that comes in to supposedly explain whatever anomaly it is. But when you, you bring all of these various issues and you line them all up, it does make the official story seem quite incredible. Um, I'd like to ask you in some detail, if I may, about the court case that you had earlier this year. My understanding is that you were summoned to court for not paying this TV license. But before we get into the business of the case itself, can you explain to us how all of this started? I mean, why did you decide to do things that way and not pay your TV license? What was behind that? Well, originally, I'd, it seemed common sense to me when I sort of made that paradigm shift, if you like, that, you know, my government had been lying to me. And I'm talking post 7-7 here. And of course, the American problem that these people are doing this with our money. And surely it was illegal for me to be, you know, giving money to these people. And, you know, hence I stopped paying the TV license. And I thought, well, there's got to be legislation that covers this. So and it didn't take me long at all probably an hour or so and, and I just you know looked up funding of terrorism and sure enough there was this legislation there um, in the Terrorism Act 2000 section 15 article 3 which very clearly prescribes if you have reasonable cause to believe that you may be funding the purposes of terrorism then you don't pay and mm. I thought well that's rather handy and you know nothing clever about it I mean it, there was the law and, and I actually wrote to the Home Office on a few occasions and said are there any exceptions to this and they wrote back saying no and then of course you know you throw into the mix things like operation northwards which is you know documented evidence that the americans have planned these kind of things before albeit vetoed by john f kennedy you're thinking well yeah no i do have reasonable cause to say the very least but I didn't really do anything with it at that time. This was going back to maybe six or seven years ago. But I did speak briefly to a man called Tim Spark. And Tim had produced one of the Loose Change movies and said to him, listen, you know, would you be interested in maybe doing a documentary about this? Because I'm going to go to war with these people. And he said, I can't. I said, why? He said, I'm working for the BBC. Thought, oh, no. <laughs> but um, and but, I mean, Tim's a very nice man. But, you know, he happened to get a job with them. So um, I forgot about it, to be quite honest. Julian, but then eventually they came and knocking on my door. I mean, I didn't keep it a secret. I'd written to the BBC and said, I'm not paying you because of this. And the letters you got from them were very civil, but um, nobody bothered me. And then sure enough, one day a chap knocked on my door last year or so ago and um, said, where's your license? He was actually looking for the lady who lived here before. He wasn't looking for me at all. Hmm. And I thought, well, do I, don't I? I thought, yeah, blow it, I will. And... Um, you know, engaged him in a long chat on 9-11. And he was almost reluctant to sort of go through with his job. But he did. And I said, OK, fair enough. And then we ended up in court using that legislation. Yeah. And did you actually visit your police station to report a crime saying that the BBC had been guilty of a crime? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've always been very open about my position the first time I submitted evidence on 9-11 was, was a long time ago. It was in 2008. And I, I sent a dossier of materials in uh, with, with things like, you know, loose change and 7-7 ripple effect on DVD and never got anything back. And so I thought, well, maybe it's time I, I actually try and go in in mm. person. And the only reason I got beyond the front desk, this is um, down in Chichester in, in West Sussex where, where I hang out, is because my father had worked there for 30 years and because I have a not an unusual name but not a common name Rook the chap behind the desk said oh were you any relation to 
And I said, well, yeah, he's my dad. And and purely because of that, they got someone down in a uniform to talk to me. I think had I not been recognised as being you know, a relative of a police officer who'd been there, I don't think I'd have got further than the front desk and got the usual fob off, which is initially what I got anyway. The lady who interviewed me didn't take any notes. She only took my mobile phone number. But um, consequently, I did send in some hard copy evidence and went to great pains to write this very lengthy report on on the London bombings and 9-11 and handed it in, got receipts, etc. I mean, right up until the, the day of the BBC case, I was handing in materials, which apparently have since been lost, which is rather unfortunate. But there you go. You know, that seems to be part of a pattern of losing things, actually, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's an interesting development that that, that, that span off that. Well, I'll, I'll tell you about, we'll keep it chronological, I suppose. But, but yeah, that right up until the court case, I was handing in materials because also under the Terrorism Act, the, the BBC um, were guilty of not reporting prior knowledge because um, I might be preaching to the converted here, but of course, they reported the collapse of World Trade Center 7 23 minutes before it occurred. And so I think it's under Section 38 of the Terrorism Act. They should have reported that to the police as, you know, certainly suspicious. But uh, obviously, they're, they're, they're working under a different law to you and me. Yeah, I do actually want to ask you about that in a bit. Um, and I think you, you say you may be preaching to the converted. I think it's true that um, a number of people listening to this podcast will know about that. But I don't suppose all will, because I do know that some people who do listen to this podcast accept the official position they have told me so in emails. So um, I think we need to look at that a little bit in more detail. Can I just quote the very words of the Terrorism Act, uh, section 15.3, isn't it here? It says, a person commits an offence if he provides money or other property and knows or has reasonable cause to suspect that it will or may be used for the purposes of terrorism. So is it right that in your understanding, that is saying that if you actually did pay your TV license to the BBC, then you would be committing an offence under this act because you have reasonable cause to suspect that this money might actually be used for the purposes of covering up a terrorist act? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was, you know, nail on the head. That's what I was arguing in court. Yeah. And made it very, very clear in all the in all the evidence we submitted beforehand. OK, well, I want to ask you about how that was received in court. So can we move on to the hearings themselves? Your first one was at Crawley Magistrates Court, and that was at the end of 2012. Can you tell us what happened there and how that hearing went? Yeah, it was, uh, as I recall, there was a lot of waiting in the um, in the sort of ante room outside the, the magistrates court there which was interesting in itself because, of course, there's a, quite a few coppers milling around. And I'd gone along with Tony Farrell, who was the you know, former senior intelligence officer for South Yorkshire Police, and uh, another chap called uh, Ray Savage, who's a former anti-terrorist officer, also awake to the 9-11 problems. So I hadn't gone along on my own, and the judge was aware of that. And it, it was obviously the same judge I would see at Horsham at the, at the trial proper, a guy called Stephen Nichols who was very fair, it has to be said. Even at the pre-trial, he said, Mr. Rook, this is what you have to do. You have to find a legal argument against the strict liability of the TV licence because it's like your income tax. It's unavoidable in law, really. But I have to say that the prosecutor on both occasions, it was the same chap. I won't name him because he won't love me for it. Was again, was also very helpful to me. I mean, if, if you're polite with these people, that they don't have a problem with you at all. I think the judge was slightly mystified, and I did say to him at the time, you know, have you heard of Building 7? And he said, I've heard of it. 
And this was a conversation that we sort of took up again when I got back to Horsham. I think it was quite good that he'd heard of it, to be honest. Yeah, well, this is it. You were saying about some of your listeners who you know don't share the same opinion as myself. And I don't I don't blame them to a large degree because they're probably just not aware of the evidence. It's so ignored. If, if, if you like, it's propaganda by omission by the BBC and, and worse. And the judge, I think, was in, in that camp. You know, he probably just watched mainstream television and it passed him by because sure. they don't show it very often. And were you required at that first hearing to offer a plea? Yeah, well, I didn't say I was not guilty of having a TV license. I mean, I obviously didn't have one. My argument was that I was not guilty of having an appropriate license because that's what they demand that you have, that you you have a license appropriate for what you watch on the television. Now, I, I watched live television, which is why you need the license, not for recorded television. But um, that really didn't seem to matter. And, and I, I was consequently sent some papers. It was TV licensing or Capita against another Tony, actually, a guy called Anthony Stone. Now, Mr. Stone, who, had, of course, lost his case, had been objecting really on sort of conscientious grounds, if you like, political grounds. He didn't like the, what he perceived as the political bias of the BBC. And I said to the judge, I said, well, this really isn't what I'm doing. I, I am objecting under the Terrorism Act. Um, but of course, the frustrating thing with it is it doesn't seem to matter. I wonder why we have the Terrorism Act, to be quite honest, because these people seem, you know, it, there's a fence around them. It, it doesn't seem to penetrate. Yeah, you said in one of your interviews that the judge had said that he was only able to look at TV licensing legislation. He wasn't actually allowed to consider any wider legislation at all. Is that right? Yeah, when we actually got to Horsham for the trial proper, he'd obviously seen, because in the three months interim between the pre-trial and the actual trial, I'd had to submit evidence, which, to my mind, was supporting my argument that the BBC were guilty of um, contributing to the you know, furtherance of purposes of terrorism. So he'd seen all that. He'd seen the DVD footage that I'd given him and, and the hard copy and some very good evidence from some very expert witnesses. People like Tony Farrell, Ray Savage, the anti-terrorism officer. We had firefighters for engineers. We had pilots for 9-11 Truth, uh, lawyers. You know, lots of people had put in statements to support me. But that doesn't seem to matter. And he said, Mr. Rook, and I think there was a, a trace of regret in his in his voice. He said, I can only deal with the legislation at hand, and that is that you don't have a TV license and you haven't given me a legal argument around it. <laughs> Which when you think, well, what is, well funding terrorism is obviously not a legal argument around it, and, and there's some incontrovertible evidence while I'm at it. I've since found out that, that there is actually a, a, an argument around strict liability, and, and I'm awaiting it from a legal colleague. But um, I couldn't tell you or your or your listeners what it is, because I don't know what it is yet. Right, well, fair enough, yes, okay, that would be a bit <laughs> a bit ridiculous to get you to comment upon that, yeah. Um, you had a number of witnesses, uh, as you say, and one of them, I believe, was Dr. Niels Harrit, who actually has been on this program oh, yeah. a few months ago. But I understand that those witnesses were not actually allowed to be heard in the case, is that right? Well, that's right, because, again, of the strict liability. Yeah. I was a little bit annoyed, I suppose, with hindsight, because we flew Niels over from Denmark. Lots of people came from, I mean, we had, you know, supporters coming in from all over Europe. There was, there was over 150 people there. So I was, I was very disappointed for Niels and disappointed for, for all the witnesses who came along. And I had about half a dozen we weren't totally shocked, but again, the judge said, listen, this is not pertinent to the litigation at hand. You don't have a TV license and that's it. 
And he said, listen, you, you can appeal this. You can go up the ladder. And I, I recall saying to him, I said, with all due respect, sir, the higher I go up the ladder, the more likely I am to meet the corruption I'm complaining about. And uh, <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it, it had to be said, I think, really. It was it was very interesting in, in the courtroom. Of, of course, you can't go to prison for not having a TV license. You can go to prison for refusing to pay the fine. But you can be fined quite a lot, can't you? Is it up to a thousand, is it, or something like that? Yeah, up to a thousand pounds. You could be you could find up to a grand. And and I hadn't had a TV license for a long time, so the the result, sort of jumping ahead a little bit, was he didn't find me. And and I think that was a tacit admission that there was some validity to the evidence. Was some validity, a lot of validity to the evidence. Um and it was no fine and a conditional discharge, which means you're not convicted providing you behave yourself for the length of that particular period, which which was a six-month conditional discharge. Which I guess in your case meant you had to go and get a TV license. Is it? I, I, I'm not sure I understood that part of it, that's for sure, Julian. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, no, I wasn't told that. I mean, I, I presume any offence whilst you're under those conditions, but I've made it pretty obvious. I've not made a secret of it. I'm not going to buy a TV license. I don't watch the television, actually, but to be quite honest, I certainly haven't done for a long time. No, I'm not going to get one, and because you know my position remains the same. Do you feel that you had a bit of a moral victory then with this, although you were found technically guilty and uh, you didn't have to pay a fine, but nevertheless you had to pay these fees? Do you think it was a moral victory though, really? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I described it in footballing terms as an away score draw. Well, I always knew that I was, you know, going to be found guilty of not having a TV license. There was no way around it. But as you said, I hadn't had a license for a long time. I could have been fined, I could have got a conviction, mm. and I didn't get one. I mean, the judge, and I've said this before, and, I, and I, I firmly believe it, I think was a fair guy. He let me make an opening statement, or try to make an opening statement. Anyway, he let me stand in the um, in the witness stand, or the dock, whatever they call it, and read out a pre-prepared statement, which is unheard of, really, for a, a TV license case. We, we were in there a good sort of two hours. And, yeah, it was a very unusual case. I mean, I, I can imagine a lot of judges would have just thrown the stuff out. They wouldn't have let me speak at all, which yeah. I've had going up against the council, by the way. They don't let you speak at all. Forget Article 6, you know, your right to a fair hearing. That doesn't exist. So do you reckon that what you did achieved what you actually intended in the first place, that you have drawn attention to this propaganda of the BBC? Yeah, I mean, it would be slightly disingenuous to say, yeah, I thought we were going to get good publicity because I had no idea. I was very surprised by the amount of people who turned up and I'm extremely grateful for them. And a couple of days before going into the case, as a few 9-11 websites obviously advertised the fact, people like ITN were calling me up and asking if we could do an interview at the court. Russia Today called me up and asked if they could come along. And even the Daily Mail turned up and did a fairly, for them, honest piece. Because the trouble is with the mainstream press, it's it's usually, you know, conspiracy theorist, that conspiracy theorist, the other. And, but I, I don't think that term actually got mentioned. And ITN were fairly fair. They did cut me. They did edit a few things out. I asked them for a live debate on television, but they'd actually cut that question out. But I, I wasn't surprised. Yeah, the publicity was good. Did I achieve anything? Um, yeah, I know for a fact it's encouraged other people to do the same. How many? I'm not sure. Hopefully it's emboldened a few people to at least have a go. And, and that raises awareness even amongst people like the court staff and the police because we, mm. they had to bring an extra police because 
you know, there are there are a hundred odd people there. So there are a lot of coppers who got educated that day as well, which is a good thing. And I suppose in a way it's a kind of ongoing achievement because your work is continuing and that was the springboard for all these things to happen in the first place. Um, I'd like to turn in a bit more detail to the concerns that you have about how the BBC covered 9-11. And I have to say, when I saw the BBC's programme on their conspiracy theory series, the one on 9-11 was the one I saw, I have to say I was appalled. I thought the information was skewed to distort many of the issues in 9-11. And I think that Adrian Connock and David Shaler's expose of that in their film 9-11 and the British Broadcasting Conspiracy did a really good job of drawing attention to those particular distortions. So could I ask you to say what you think are some of the main ways in which the BBC has distorted the truth about what happened on 9-11 in the various coverage they've given over the years? Blimey, how long have you got? Indeed. (laughs) Just, you know, some main things that come to mind. Well, I mean, anyone who's played about with filmmaking at home or or whatever knows that editing is all. And the one thing they are stick on guilty of is propaganda by omission. And in the DVD evidence that we submitted at Horsham, for example, the Third Tower program, in the opening sequences, they've got this very nice sort of female voiceover lady doing um, a little Mm -hmm. chat. And they cut to Building 7 with the men, emergency workers, walking away from the building And they've actually edited a huge explosion that happens. And one of the guys actually says, did you hear that? That's cut. And then another guy saying, move away. Um, The building is about to blow up. Now, why on earth did they edit that? And then, of course, you have Building 7 falling down the way it did. But to edit that kind of audio is verging on criminal. Well, it's not verging on criminal, it is criminal. Yes, I, I did in fact see that. Uh, you, you sent me a link earlier today and it was to that particular video. And uh, yeah, I, I noticed that that was really quite disingenuous, to be honest. Absolutely. And this is why, you know, when you're talking about some of your your listeners are not on board, that's why they're not on board, because they've watched the BBC. And if you continue to watch the BBC and their coverage of 9-11, you simply won't learn anything. Um Yeah, I mean, their portrayal of of the 9-11 truth movement is shocking in itself. The Andrew Maxwell programs, 9-11 road trip, the the idea that anyone should be sceptical or or cynical about government is poo-pooed as ridiculous. Well, if it's so ridiculous, then, you know, why did the BBC many years ago actually make a program about Operation Northwoods, which is all about the American government planning false flag terror attacks across the Guantanamo Bay area and killing their own citizens? It's Indeed, as they they made a documentary or released a documentary in their Time Watch series about Operation Gladio as well, didn't they? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the, the creme de la creme is, is Jane Stanley reporting the collapse of a building that stood up behind her, Boulder's Brass, and, and doesn't fall for another 23 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Now, could you actually explain more about that one? Because I know that is a very well-known scene there. It appears all over YouTube. But I think there could well be people listening to this podcast who don't know about it. So could you give us an idea about what that was all about? Yeah, absolutely. And around about sort of five o'clock-ish on, on 9-11, uh, that the BBC, we were obviously covering the events live. Philip Hayton announces on air live that uh, another building called the Salomon Brothers Building, also known as World Trade Center 7, which is a 47 story steel structure skyscraper, has indeed, quote, collapsed. And then they cut to the, the, this lady reporter called Jane Stanley in New York, who, who stood by a window with um, New York skyline behind her. But sure enough, as she starts telling us about the collapse of World Trade Center 7, 
not that most of us knew it at the time, World Trade Center 7 was stood up behind her and seemingly in fine condition. There, but there certainly wasn't any uh, great degree of smoke billowing from it. There, there was some damage on the south side, which you couldn't see. Um, and when you look at some of those videos reproduced on YouTube, a few people have very helpfully put a large white arrow pointing <laughs> to the building still standing behind her head. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, I don't think Philip Hayton or indeed Jane Stanley are, are, are complicit in any great sure, cover up sure. here. But certainly, I mean, I've had correspondence with the BBC and, and they're certainly on record as saying that well, they, they admit to broadcasting the event 23 minutes before it occurred. But they say, uh, quote unquote, it was a cock up. And then they go on to say that in our reporting, we, we would have always used words like maybe and possibly. But that's not true at all. They were very definite about the fact that this building had gone down. As you say, has indeed. Well, it's very emphatic. Has indeed gone down. And again, you know, referring back to the, the whole story of 9-11 and, and this sort of guilty behaviour that seems to be everywhere, you know, that they've really done their best to sort of shy away from it. And when you ask them, and I've certainly asked them numerous times, where did you get the original report and I, I tried via freedom of information requests for some years. It was protected under the Freedom of Information Act, and they don't have to tell you. What then happens when they did the third tower program in, I think, around about 2008, they turned around and said, but it was Reuters gave us the story. But that's ridiculous. That's like saying, where does sugar come from? It comes from Tesco's, but it doesn't. That's not the origin of it. We want to know who gave Reuters the story. And they really have backpedaled very badly over the whole thing. And then, you know, they don't want anything to do with the Building 7 story at all. And that's perfectly obvious. And I think was obvious to the judge at Horsham. I mean, he he, he wasn't daft. He, he, mm. he knows the fish when he smells one. Was it the BBC who said that the, the original report that was reported by Reuters uh, originally came from some local report? Yeah, it's it's all wonderfully vague. I mean, that the official stance is it came from Reuters. Um, another thing that I highlighted in um, my DVD evidence was a clip from, I think, the, the Third Tower programme was Richard Porter, who was, I think, the head of World News at the time of 9-11, has an email on his desk and he's talking to camera and, 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 the, and the camera does actually pan down very conveniently for a little bit and I froze it and blew it up and it would appear looking at the email and, and you can see this on a little YouTube video I've posted called what the judge saw that the correspondence seems very very recent it's almost as if they haven't bothered to ever find out where the story came from and this is their first interaction with Reuters and Reuters actually gives them permission it's almost like well you may say this you may say that which bearing in mind who the BBC are they're meant to be the best news <laughs> news company in the world or so they would tell us um, that's quite shocking it sort of give the impression that somebody's breathing down their necks, doesn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, we know we know from their um, their charter and and their editorial guidelines that, that they've breached God knows how many things on, for that day. But we also know that in the event of a national emergency, and I presume 9/11 covers that even over here, they do come under the control of Whitehall. Now, I don't think that had anything to do with, with the prescient report of World Trade Center 7, but I, I certainly think it's got something to do with their behavior since. Now, and I can't remember where I heard this, but I, I think I heard some supposed explanation of how this could have happened, that there was some kind of technical assessment made in New York that building number seven was so badly damaged by fire that its collapse was imminent. And uh, so a report saying that it had collapsed was prepared in advance and somehow this got announced too early. Do you find that at all credible? No, 
purely because, well, I mean, the story's changed numerous times on World Trade Center 7. You have to bear in mind it took them an awfully long time to actually come out with a final report on it. I think it came out in November 2008. And, and the official line is now that, yes, it fell down due to fire. Now, anybody who knows anything about 9-11 will know that that makes it the third steel structure building in the world to fall down because of fire, the, the first two being World Trade Center 1 and World Trade Center 2. All right, they had aeroplanes hit them, so we'll put them to one side. We'll be generous, which is what we did at the trial. We didn't mention World Trade Centers 1 and 2 at all. Let's just stick with Building 7. You know, I, def I defy anybody to go on go onto the Internet and, and, and look at that building, even the damage to the south side, which was not a cause for its collapse, according to, to the report, to say why it fell down because of fire and in the manner it did. Fire doesn't burn symmetrically. It exhausts one area, it moves on to another area. And, you know, I had a nine years experience firefighter with me in court who was going to go to bat for me as well. And he'd written a report and the judge had seen that. So so there was no precedent then for any decision, any assessment to be made at the time to say, look, this building looks like it's coming down. The, the assessment should have been at the time, well, this building's going to stay standing, even though it's being damaged by fire. There are um, reports of firefighters saying that, that they're expecting it to come down. And I, and I think things have come out after the fact, maybe to bolster that story. But what has been completely ignored by the BBC are eyewitnesses such as Craig Bartmer, who is a serving police officer on 9-11, who was stood next to Building 7, is willing to go on record and testify, saying that there were bombs going off, there were explosions going off. And the symmetrical collapse of World Trade Center 7, the speed at which it fell, which was free fall, which is gravitational speed for two and a quarter seconds that's only achievable by removing all of the structure all at the same time to, to achieve that freefall which of course NIST which is the National Institute of Standard and Technology who were tasked with doing the report on the collapse denied for many many years and it was architects and engineers for 9-11 truth who applied enough pressure to say well listen we can prove it fell at free fall and here's the maths was it david chandler who was instrumental in doing in getting that? yeah a high school physics teacher mm. um it was david chandler who, who exerted that pressure and, and yeah wonderful chap and eventually they conceded mm. the point you know but who reads these reports i mean the 9-11 commission report i mean i got about 100 pages in and, and wanted to fall asleep and that's <laughs> it is very dry and deliberately so nobody reads it interestingly enough of course world trade center 7 wasn't even featured in the original report sure not even featured so that speaks volumes on its own and i think it is so important for people to see that video footage of that building coming down because it just it's, it's been said a million times but it does look exactly like a controlled demolition and when you put that together with the fact that these three buildings were the three buildings only ever to have collapsed, uh, largely because of fire, as the reports say, it does it stretches uh, credulity, doesn't it, to breaking point, really, to believe the official account of this. It does. It does. And, and, and like I said, it's behavior after the fact that makes you suspect there's something, uh, you know, not right here. You can ignore the World Trade Centers one and two to a degree. But when you look at Building 7, and I defy any, anybody, even the most hardened sort of supporter of the government, if you like, to look at World Trade Center 7 and say there, is, there isn't anything wrong. I mean, it went down in a, in a straight line. I mean, it was a symmetrical collapse. And like I said, for, and this is in the NIST report, this is the thing, but nobody bothers to read it. And it's hidden in plain sight. Two and a quarter seconds, gravitational speed. That building went down perfectly symmetrical through thin air, for 100 feet or the equivalent of eight stories. Now, where did those eight stories go? 
and yet we are asked to believe that the action of fire inside the building removed all the support inside and that therefore it just suddenly collapsed when all the the support had been taken away. I'm not a technical person in that sense, you know, but I find that so ad hoc that it is unbelievable. Yeah, it it is unbelievable. And and I'm not a scientific person either, but it it really is high school physics. It's... um, you know, even if you tug away a, a tablecloth from underneath some crockery, that there will be a little bit of freefall just for a split second. Building seven was 47 stories high, and there was a hundred foot gap all the way around that building for two and a quarter seconds for the rest of it to fall through. How did that occur? Fire can't do it. And it's the American government saying it's freefall, rather reluctantly, it has to be said. And it really is the smoking gun of 9-11. Could I turn to your documentary, Offensive, the story of Tony Farrell, which, as I said before, I think is a very, very powerful documentary. And you you interweave the story of the police detective or intelligence analyst, Tony Farrell, and his dismissal from South Yorkshire Police Force because he questioned 9-11 and questioned 7-7. You interweave that with the alternative media investigations of those events. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us something about Tony Farrell's experience and um, how you went about making that movie? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Tony's a wonderful chap. And um, I was in a car and a friend of mine said, oh, you're interested in 9-11. Look at this. And, you know, it was, it was in the Sun newspaper, uh, bizarre claims by cop. And Tony had woken up very quickly and, and obviously done some research into, into 9-11 and London. And thought he's a christian chap and said well i've got no choice here i have to report this to my superiors because i'm tasked it is my job he'd been a senior intelligence officer for south yorkshire police for for over 10 years and that was his job to report terror threats where he saw them amongst other things and took it to his superiors and then the walls came down and eventually he was dismissed First of all, they wanted him to go to occupational health. You know, they said, oh, yeah, you're obviously disturbed. That that kind of reaction. Oh. But, yeah, eventually he was dismissed. And I got in touch with him, you know, through the you know the wonders of the Internet and, and said, as, you know, has anyone sort of told your story to any degree? And other, other than some sort of minor reports in the newspapers, most of which were ridicule. Anyway, he agreed, he agreed for me to come up and I, I stayed with him in his house in Yorkshire went to church within Bible group. Um, we were actually allowed to film in a, in a lovely church in Sheffield next to the, the Crucible where, where they play the snooker with David Pidcock, who's a good friend of Tony's and the head of the British uh, Islamic Party. Yeah, so I, I basically sort of hang around with, with, with Tony and we became friends as you do when you do that kind of thing for, for a week or so. Um, it's a beautiful area uh, where he lived up in, in Barnsley and, you know, uh, tried to drag him to places that were very picturesque, you know, made him wear a suit for it. It wasn't like you, do. you go down the river when you're wearing a suit, don't you? Yeah. And um, yeah, sure. And But he was very, very open and he's a very honest man and a very brave guy. Mm. Um, but his story was encouraging but quite scary as well i mean he was very nervous man when you know he was blowing the whistle if you like although the information had been been known for a long time to many of us 
Tony had come onto the 9-11 scene relatively late. So he was quite reluctant then to, to come forward with this. He wasn't the kind of person who was looking for something to expose. No, he was just doing his job. And, and he's a Christian man and he's, and he's got a conscience. And, he, you know, the, the, it was, this was a real crisis for him. And but he couldn't sort of betray his faith. He felt he had to be honest. And if people are kind enough to watch the film, he talks a few times about, you know, he would have been bearing false witness against his neighbours. And, and on this occasion, his neighbours being Muslims because, he, you know, he just didn't buy into the fact that it was these 19 Muslim hijackers that had taken part in 9-11, you know, several of whom are still alive, or the four lads from Leeds um, who did London as well. And was he told by South Yorkshire police, somebody said something along the lines of, well, you, you might actually be right, but your attitude isn't consistent with with functioning as an analyst or something along those lines? Yeah, I, I can't remember the name of the senior officer, but Tony's often said that to me, that he had this conversation with one of his, his governors there and said, Tony, you may actually be right, but we are only the government foot soldiers, which is an appalling thing to say, really. It, it is indeed, yes. That's quite chilling. Mm, indeed but that's unfortunately the the attitude of too many people in our sort of services it's a sort of yes sir no sir culture and and of course people are frightened of of losing their jobs the implications are quite severe and and lo and behold tony lost his job lost his house his car and um i saw him the other week he's he's in good spirits but yeah i mean it was a, a pretty traumatic experience for him but he's, he's still got his integrity and i think that's what counts he certainly comes over in the movie as a very genuine chap um i, I warm to him very much um you say that a big part of the motivation to challenge these official accounts of 9-11 and 7-7 is his christian faith and uh, i'd like to ask you as a christian yourself what role does your faith in christ play in what you're doing to bring attention to these issues um, I think the biggest motivation, which I, I like to think, I hope is linked to my faith, is anger. It makes me very angry. I'm shameless about using images of children who have, have been injured or killed in, in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, it's it's like you wear the, the little bangles when you're younger, isn't it? What would Jesus do? And I, and I think Jesus would be absolutely mortified, is mortified and very cross about this. And, yeah, it makes me very angry. I don't think you have to be a Christian to, to be angered by it, yeah. but I certainly think it helps when you're going to do things, which were a little bit nerve-wracking, I'll be honest, I mean, going to court about it, you think, oh, well. Um, but, you know, you pray and say, well, this is the right thing to do, and it's the right thing to do because that's what Jesus would do. Well, that's my opinion on it. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of people look upon Jesus as being meek and mild and all that. But if you actually read through the New Testament, the, uh, the the broader picture of his character is one, you know, who would say things like, you know, you brood of vipers if he saw some um, something going on that should, shouldn't be happening and the like. So I think, I think, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think it's very much in keeping with the character of Jesus and therefore the character of God to uh, expose these things when such atrocities are taking place. I'm not making any comparison between me and him, by the way. <laughs> No, 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 quite. But, you know, he, he is indeed our model. So, you know, we're supposed yeah. to follow him. Yeah. Well, it helps a little bit with um, courage sometimes and, and motivation. I, I mean, I'll be honest, Julian, I, I'm not a great churchgoer. I mean, one of the things that has really angered me is the indifference of the church. Absolutely. I was going to be my very next question, actually. So you, you can just answer it. <laughs> Okay. Um, well, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's again, it's it. Maybe it's indifference born of ignorance. They they just don't know. 
But there's such a, a resistance, isn't there? I suppose actually in, in the culture in general, and that's no different inside the church. I mean, I, my listeners will be absolutely fed up with me <laughs> saying this, but I'm going to say it again because you haven't heard it. And that is, you know, on the 10th anniversary, which happened to be a Sunday, went to church, and there was no mention of, of well, there was, you know, there were a few prayers for, you know, the, the friends and families of people who had died 10 years before. But that was it. And when we went for tea and coffee afterwards, it was talk about anything else under the sun, but no mention of 9-11. Certainly nothing of any concern about the official account or anything like that. And I, I certainly felt as one who was questioning these things that I couldn't bring that question up with anybody. Um, so I do feel that that general reluctance in the culture is just the same in the church. And that really does sadden me because I think, you know, we should be questioning. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um my wife goes, uh, my wife's uh, Indonesian, and she decided she wanted to get involved with the Catholics and my, well, my mother goes, and so she trots along there merrily, and now and again I go and pick her up, and I, I do occasionally pin a 9-11 truth card to the notice board. I, I think it's, well, it's like you said, you know, you went on a 10th anniversary and not much was said about it. They don't seem to say an awful lot, and I don't mean this in a judgmental way, they don't seem to say an awful lot about the illegal wars, you know, and, and even Nick Clegg, the deputy prime minister, has said that the war was illegal. You'd think that the church would be up in arms about this kind of stuff, but it just doesn't seem to occur. Mm. I think a lot of people have been confused about it. I've heard many people say they don't understand, you know, what are we doing over there and that sort of thing. But to go further, as like you say, and, and talk in terms of legality, that doesn't seem to happen very much. Yeah, I know politics and, and, and things like this can seem a dry subject for people. But when you look at, for example, I mean, it's my anger, some people, but it's true and I stand by it. I mean, this country will kill more people than the Nazis ever did, purely by the use of depleted uranium in weapons that have been fired in Iraq. And Iraq is now completely poisoned for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years to come. Now, those statistics and go to the campaign against depleted uranium, not only is it affecting the cancer rates for people in Iraq, but it's also our troops as well, because they're going to inhale this stuff. It's airborne and then it gets into the water. And Iraq now is the poor women in Iraq are, are producing little baby monsters. They are so horribly deformed, so horribly twisted. And, and if they survive, and that's purely down to us. And it drives me nuts when I see people standing there getting all teary-eyed when a Spitfire flies over on Battle of Britain Day. You know, come on, folks, you know, put your brains back in. I think uh, one of the things which David Ray Griffin brought out in one of his lectures that I saw was the idea that there's this uh, American exceptionalism, almost like a religion of American exceptionalism. And I do sometimes wonder whether we have over here in the UK a kind of British exceptionalism as well, that you know our, our government and our forces couldn't perpetrate the kind of uh, anything even approaching the kind of thing that happened during the Nazi era. And I do think to myself that inside that kind of attitude is a, it's almost a kind of racism really that you know what happened in germany well that was because they were germans you know what i mean it couldn't happen to us but you know we're talking about the human condition here and i think any country any government can be yeah. guilty or not necessarily government you know what i mean any group of people can be guilty of the most horrendous things and that can include us absolutely i mean patriotism can be extremely dangerous and the fact remains, and the numbers remain, that, that we will kill more than the Nazis. And if that's an uncomfortable fact for people, then that's an uncomfortable fact. But it's true. Not only is it true, 
But the report that was meant to come out on these weapons using depleted uranium was completely fudged by the government. And well, it wasn't fudged. They lied about it. They said it had been done, that they were OK. They didn't breach the Geneva Convention or anything like that. And then we all found out, and it was in The Guardian, that uh, they'd actually never done the report in the first place. Now, you know, what's going on? Again, propaganda by mission. And, you know, this Gulf War syndrome, whatever you want to call it, any soldiers who have served out there, you know, I deeply sympathize with because they don't know either. Yeah. Um, well, I, w- I want to ask you also about your latest project, which is another film called Incontrovertible. And you've got the subtitle 9-11 Truth versus the BBC. When I first heard about that, I thought that was going to be about your case. But that's not quite right, is it? Isn't it going to be a kind of putting together evidence, 9-11 Truth evidence, and putting that on trial with experts in some way? Yeah, we've modified it slightly since because what happened at the BBC trial, I, I bumped into a guy who, who came along called Matt Campbell. Uh, Matt's a lovely chap. He he lost his brother, sadly, um, uh, Jeff, in the North Tower of the World Trade Center on 9-11. And Matt came along to the case. Yeah, I mean, it, it still holds true to a degree. We're, we're going to because it's very, very difficult to engage serving police officers, serving soldiers because of their you know their current investment with jobs with money with duty to actually get them to look at the evidence that was shown at the bbc and, and the judge obviously found to be credible we're going to go to retired ones we're going to go to retired police officers retired judges we can get them retired soldiers and some clergy as well having just had a good old rant about the church and show them much the same that was shown at horsham and some other stuff and get their opinion on it because they've got no jobs to lose now. They can't be sort of threatened with, uh, you know, sort of loss of security, if you like, and film it. But use Matt as the interviewer because he's and he is genuinely searching for answers on 9-11 and, and him and his, his mother want a new investigation. It's taken 12 years for them to get the coroner's report on his brother, which is absolutely ridiculous. And he's a very engaging guy and he's he's not too confrontational and he's got genuine reasons for asking the questions. So we're going to go and visit these people, retired police, soldiers, etc., and ask them what they think of things like Building 7. So have you actually got people on board? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I come from a police family anyway, so oh, yeah, that yeah. wouldn't be incredibly difficult. What What's a little bit harder is I don't really want to do that because then I'm obviously going to be accused of sort of bias, nepotism, what have you. Oh, but yeah. yes, I mean, I've got meetings set up whereby we're confident that we're going to get them. We want 12, and so we'd, we'd like at least half of them to be police you know, one or two clergy from all faiths. I mean, I'd be quite happy to interview people from a Muslim faith because, of course, they're the ones who've been demonised. And and they're, they're beginning to wake up. I, I spent my Easter Sunday filming with Tony Farrell, actually, in a mosque in Southampton, and there's genuine interest there, trying to encourage them to, again, to engage with their police. Yeah, it would be very interesting because the normal procedures for police investigation, whenever you get something like a 9-11 or a London get turned on their head. I mean, the, the first thing you would do in a normal police investigation is look at the known suspects. You know, have we got any bank robbers in the area? Have we got any sex offenders in the area, et cetera, et cetera? Well, of course, the, the American government have got what we call previous. And so a neutral police force would look at them first and say, well, what are you doing? You know, what's been going on? And of course, when you study the background of 9-11, their fingerprints are all over it. 
Yes, indeed. I believe that uh, Kevin Ryan's recently brought out a book looking at the alternative suspects, the, the kind of people you've just been talking about. I haven't read the book, but I believe that's what he's brought out. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I know Kevin a little bit only from being interviewed with him. He's a very clever man. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to reading that. But absolutely, the 19 that we've been led to believe again you know show that to a police officer how could this man hanny hanyer who allegedly flew the, the plane into the pentagon he couldn't fly <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible absolutely incredible yeah. and he did an expert maneuver <laughs> it, it, it is it is crazy stuff it's i say basic forensics that sounds glib but it, it, it's certainly something that a police officer when confronted with and i witnessed this firsthand very recently um, I was granted an interview with our district commander and, and she'd never even seen Building 7 fall down. And of course, when she saw it, wow, mm. you know, oh, that looks like a controlled demolition. Well, golly gosh, doesn't it just? And she felt slightly embarrassed. She, she'd never even seen it, you know, 12 years after the event. So that's that's the concept. Yeah. Sure. I was just re- reminded of that um, demolition expert, uh, Danny Joenko. And that famous video of him seeing the, the building come down. And it's just, what? You know, really? yeah. On yeah. that day? Really? <laughs> yeah. You could just see the penny drop. You know, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I mean, 20 or 30 years of experience. Was it a controlled demolition, Danny? Well, of course it was. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Now, you're uh, asking for small donations to this film that you're making. And uh, I guess the idea here is that if people just make small donations, it will all add up and you'll be able to make a film that has more production quality to it than it would be otherwise. Um, Is that your idea behind this? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You can't go to... I mean, I have worked in... uh, I've worked for people like Channel 4 before in the past as a writer and even the Fox Network, I'm ashamed to say, and the BBC for that matter, but not as a filmmaker. I think we need to end the interview at this point. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I should leave the room. But, um, yeah, that was many, many years, pre-9-11. But um, obviously the, the, the power of the internet is such that, you know, people get wind of things and if they like the idea that they chip in and it's received a very good response. People seem to like the idea of engaging with law enforcers, albeit retired ones. If we can get some serving ones, then great, we will. But they're very, very reluctant to go in front of camera, probably because of people like Tony Farrell. I mean, look what happened to Tony. And so it doesn't encourage serving officers to say the same thing even when the evidence is, and, and hence the title of the film, incontrovertible, because certainly with Building 7, that is incontrovertible physics, and th- there is no two ways around it. So, yeah, I mean, if anybody um, w- would like to chip in, there's a donation page on, on my website. Yeah, and you're, you're saying it was just a, a dollar or a pound, and this will really help to make a difference. And don't, don't you say that um, people will actually appear, their names will appear on the credits if they do that? Yeah, anyway, yeah. I mean, if anyone wants to chip in over 25, I mean, I've got a lot of, lot, a lot of donations, and I'm very grateful for all of them. Um, anyone wants to chip in over sort of 25 quid, we'll put their name on the movie but cool. um, and give them a DVD. But yeah, it, it does all build up to use better cameras. And, and what we hope to do at the end of the picture is bring all these people together at a big venue in London and get them to deliver a verdict, albeit, you know, not legally binding, but get them all to meet up, have a chat about their mutual experience and and what they've learned and deliver a quote unquote verdict on it. And then give the film to serving police officers, because if you can go into a police station and say, well, here's a conspiracy movie, they'll poo poo it and tell you to go away. If you go in there with with a film that's their guys, mm. if you like, well, this is your lot saying this. It's not us lot. It's your lot saying this. That carries a lot more credibility and a lot more weight with them. And yeah, like I said, I recently had a, a meeting with my district commander, and 
she actually liked the idea and i think was quite relieved it was almost like oh, it, it sort of takes it off my shoulders so to speak mm, i think it is a great idea um but i'm afraid i cut you off when you were saying about your website address could you just give that out again yeah yeah the website is called uh, killing auntie films which is um a reference to Auntie BBC, of course, uh, Killing Auntie Films. And, and there is a donation page on there, and anybody who wants to chip in anything, I'd, I'd be hugely grateful. Um, but, yeah, no, it, it's going well. We, we've had some very generous donations, and, and people have been very responsive to the idea. And like I said, we're, we're going to use Matt and um, drag him around the country, meeting various people, and film it and, and their reactions to it. I mean, from a filmmaking point of view, there, there's a lot of sort of pathos in there. It's a very sad thing. I mean, for, for, for people to wake up, and I saw it to a degree with my own father, when you realise that, you know, your paymasters, the people that you've been serving for, for so long, are actually the bad guys. That's not a nice realisation at all. But on the other hand, it can be a very liberating one, and that's really what we're trying to achieve. Well, I wanted to ask you if there's anything else that you'd like to say before we close. Um, we've said a, a great deal, um, but there may be something which we've missed out. Do you have, have anything in mind at all that you'd like to share with us before we close? Anyone listening who, who hasn't sort of woken up to 9-11, maybe because they, I call it the Father Christmas syndrome, if you like, Julian. It's, it's like, you know, you're telling a child that actually this kindly old guy who comes down the chimney every year doesn't exist. And it's it's mum and dad. I mean, that that's difficult enough for a child. But it's, it's even harder sometimes for an adult to tell them that they've been suckered. Nobody likes to think that they've been suckered or conned. There's a, a sort of defense mechanism, I think, within all of us that rebels against that. But if they could study anything before they studied 9-11 or London, for that matter, to have a look at Operation Northwoods, to have a look at Operation Gladio. And, and like you said earlier on, Operation Gladio is still available on, on YouTube, and that was made by the BBC. And Operation Northwoods is a declassified document, which was obtained under the Freedom of Information Act by George Washington University. So these are pucker materials, and it will show you that if you don't think the government would do this, you're wrong. And what they were doing in the 60s with Northwoods was on a colossal scale. That included mocked-up airliners being blown blown up and it says in the document we will then you know we'll disseminate this throughout the world using the media and if you know anything about our media then well i think we know about our media nowadays and this was the joint chiefs of staff wasn't it so this was top brass stuff absolutely yeah this was very high up yeah. uh, a guy called limits and he got as far as jfk's desk and he said no absolutely not and vetoed it and i think we all know what happened to him well, I shall link to those things for people who haven't read Operation Northwoods and haven't come across uh, Operation Gladio. Those things will be in the show notes. So can I say to you, Tony, it's been great to have you on. It's been a great discussion. So thank you ever so much for sparing this time to join us. Uh, thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Julian.